This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams and boxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth. My motto is life is a numbers game. The failures, which are constant, the successes, which have a lot to do with luck and good timing. I sort of look at life as this incredible adventure. It's generally up and to the right, and I look at it as a numbers game. From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Hi, everyone. Justin Schreiber here. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at People.ai. Today, I'm joined by Hillary Coppola McAdams. Over the course of her career, Hillary has piloted the sales organizations of some of the great tech companies, including Oracle, Salesforce, and New Relic. She's currently a venture partner at NEA. Edith Wharton once said, true originality consists not in a new manner, but in a new vision. I can't think of anyone who better embodies this concept than Hillary. During her career, she has constantly upended the way that products and services are taken to market. Along the way, she's developed a model related to disruption. And later in the podcast, we're going to get into some detail related to that model. But first, I wanted to explore the influences in Hillary's life that led her to believe that at the end of the day, anything can be disrupted and improved. Hillary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Justin. It's just a pleasure to be here. Now, Hillary, I needed to start off. I hadn't realized this, but upon doing some research, I actually realized that you and Mick Jagger go way back. In fact, when he was out here in the Bay, I understand he personally presented you with a rose. Can you confirm this story? I did receive a rose from Mick at a concert at uh, Candlestick Park back in the 80s, but I'm not sure I I could say it was presented to me. Much more of a random rose catch. (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to embellish that story a little bit. I'm sure that that Mick will will remember you and that it was a remarkable, remarkable story. Hillary, I'm really excited to get into some of the things that you've learned as you've piloted these great companies Of course, though, the story always begins, though, in the childhood. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what you were like as a girl? So I'm part of a team, and my dad ran R&D for an industrial company. He worked on engine design, kind of the early clean tech movement of the 70s and 80s. And my mom was a family therapist. And, you know, they... (laughs) I laugh now. They had an interesting philosophy in life. My dad's philosophy is, as you know, kind of the classic engineering leader, there's always a better way. And my mom's philosophy was more or less, there's always a better way for human potential and your potential as my child. (laughs) I'm sure those were some great dinner conversations. Oh, yeah. What impact did they have on you growing up and, and what have you carried with you? Well, that that motto of there's always a better way is really, I bring it up because that's really the gift they instilled in, I think, all four of us. 
We all work in areas where we can innovate and recreate or create new approaches. I have a brother who's a scientist at Sundia Labs. And I think it gave us a freedom to just explore the world. And when I look back on my career in tech, which has now been, you know, 33 years, I realized that that by embracing that motto is really able to roll with all that tech gives you. Let's go back to your dad for a minute, the engineer. I've been around a lot of engineers. What I've learned is that you can take the engineer out of the lab, but you can't necessarily take the lab out of the engineer. Did your dad ever invent anything that you guys put to use around the house? Lots of things. Probably the funniest thing that he came up with was when my sister and I were born and my older brother was two and still in diapers. He built an attachment nozzle to the toilet that you could rinse off cloth baby diapers in those days. This is probably not relatable. You had to actually rinse the diapers off. And he invented the pooper scooper. Um, And that goes down in family legend as a great innovation at the time. But, you know, Procter & Gamble out-innovated him with the disposable diaper. (laughs) The disposable diaper and then the diaper genie, one of my all-time favorite inventions. (laughs) Totally. As the father of five, I am indebted Whoever invented that. I would have used the pooper scooper, though, I think, had had I not had the disposable diaper. Exactly. (laughs) Now, you also had a pretty remarkable grandmother, as I understand. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, my paternal grandmother was the first female banking commissioner in the United States. She was the banking commissioner for the state of Massachusetts and a Republican, which is pretty unique in that state, a woman, a Republican bank commissioner. She served in that role for 12 years under several different governors of the state. And she was also the state representative for the city of Brookline. And her counterpart was John F. Kennedy. So this is in the 60s and 70s. And she was a remarkable kind of hard-charging woman. People often in the family tell me that I'm a lot like her. But I'll I'll share one story that really inspired me as a kid and still today when when the chips are down. One time she recounted a story about having to go into the back door, through the back door at a men's club, like a private uh, men's club, which were very common in those days. And she wasn't allowed to enter the front door because she was a woman. And I remember at a really young age, I was probably like eight or nine, saying like, Nana, didn't that bother you? And she said, no, dear, (laughs) they were there to listen to me. That was fine. And I, I just thought that she had exactly the right attitude. She didn't mind going through the back door because she was going to the podium. (laughs) Well, it certainly sounds like you grew up in a household where education was valued. And in fact, you went to Mills College. After that, you got a master's in public policy at the University of Chicago. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in the program. The question, though, is how did you go from public policy to Oracle? I had this idea of following in my grandmother's footsteps and working for the Federal Reserve. Um, And they, you know, in fact, the Fed did recruit from the university. So that was definitely, and I have friends who took that path. But when I graduated, I ended up coming back to the West Coast and I had a friend who was working at Oracle and I had student loans that were due. And option A was get a job and pay the loans. And option B was call my parents, who at this point, you have five children, so you know this day is coming. They had had four kids in school for 
12 years, you know, in higher education, college and grad school. So I kind of felt I couldn't make that phone call. So I applied to Oracle. I was hired right away. Larry Ellison had gone to the University of Chicago. He recruited, they recruited as a company from 10 universities in the country at that time. And I loved it. I love that company. We were disrupting. I mean, uh, the audience will think of Oracle as big and staid, but you and I know from being there, it was the cool, disruptive company. It was the company that was trying to bring fabulous technology to market at a lower cost with a better customer experience, just like all these innovative companies continue to do today. One of the topics that comes up again and again as I as I've talked to you about your career is this idea of disruption. Yes. It's something that you relish. And I think you've got probably one of the most sophisticated perspectives on disruption. Can you perhaps share with us a couple of the highlights of the formula for disruption that you've applied to be successful in your career? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I give I credit being at Oracle with really honing my concept for Disruption. So, you know, my favorite thing to do is to redefine the rules for a category. So with Oracle, it was relational database. I'll be honest, I had to learn all that. I didn't realize when I joined the company what we were doing. But by the time I got to Salesforce, I truly understood what the cloud represented, what a subscription business model represented in terms of a disruption. And I was ripe to do it. So number one, it's defining for yourself as a company, how are we going to redefine this category? And then how do we meet customers with that message? Because they have certain expectations. They're looking for a particular type of experience. How do we make that experience so good they never would go back to the old way? So with database, the alternative was the IBM flat file DB2 SQL DS databases. They cost, you know, 25, 50, 100 million dollars to implement. And then we had this wildly small and cost-effective relational database that ran on any piece of hardware that you wanted to buy. And that was big, you know, this concept that you could right-size your hardware and still bring the same relational database technology to bear without any kind of rewriting. And that was that was sort of the first value prop I really understood deeply and how um, revolutionary that was for customers. And I've taken that technique to every other company that I've been at. Landing at Oracle as your first job out of school must have been a little bit intimidating. You've got some strong personalities, to say the least there. You've never been in tech before. When you showed up on the first day, did you feel like you were ready to go or was that was that a little bit of an overwhelming experience? Well, day one was scary for sure because <laughs> you're with a group of people that are a lot like you but different and all everyone has a lot of strengths. I think as I got to understand the culture, I really loved it. It's very Socratic. It was very much like you, Chicago. It valued ideas. Larry really embraced this idea of the best ideas win, and it didn't really matter where the ideas came from. And I, you see a lot of Valley companies today replicate that same concept of the best ideas come from the front lines. And I love that. I felt really empowered to express my point of view and cook up new approaches for the company in terms of how we got our product out to market or how we globalized or how we supported customers. I thought it was just fantastic. And I've tried to take that same approach to every other company I've been to. I remember at probably age 
27, 28, I was put on the sales advisory board for the president of Oracle. And I was surely 10 years younger than everyone else, maybe 20 on that board. But people listened to me in that forum. And I remember thinking, oh, this is so empowering. When I run a company, I want to make sure that everyone who has an opinion about how we should run this business is listened to because this is really where the best ideas come from. Now, Oracle had a rather esoteric product. Relational databases is something that you can walk in, put on the table, and it sells itself. What approach did you take to engaging with customers, proving value, demonstrating that Oracle was the right solution? Oracle's following, early following, is very much like a lot of the open source companies of today where it was a developer that raises their hand, has done some research on their own, and recognizes that there's something big there. And that's great for planting that first pilot application or prototype, but it's really hard to win a standardization decision with that approach. So part of what we thought about a lot at Oracle was building two experiences, one for the developer and one for the person with the budget or the decision maker and having different value propositions that worked for both. We actually had a sales team that tended to target that developer. You see a lot of these segmentation strategies play out today in the market. Amazon does this. ServiceNow does this, Salesforce certainly we did this, where you have sort of a dedicated Salesforce that focuses on a particular persona. And then there's a tipping point where another level of seller and customer success person comes in to help drive adoption and get to a standardization decision. In the old days, as you know, it was kind of painful because there was no trial experience. You could chip a disk to someone, but you had no control over whether or not they found the time to install that disk, if they even had hardware, and what their first experience looked like after they did the installation. Today, you can actually design all that. You know, you know what the trial experience looks like. You can put these fabulous front-end user experiences in, in place to get customers to start providing data into their trial experience so it actually has meaning to them. And in those days, we had to create proxies for all those experiences. And it it was hard, but we were very successful. How did you create a trial experience at a time when there was no cloud? Great question. Well, one of the things I'm very proud of is we came up with this idea for the Oracle applications products that we could hire some of the top engineers in the world in India back in the 90s and have them help build prototypes for customers. This is before the internet, so I have to set context here. Essentially, we would ask customers for an excerpt of their financial data, data, like something from their general ledger. We would take that data, it's just a snapshot of a little bit of data, send it to our team in India, and overnight, their day, our night, they would actually ingest the data into the Oracle applications and build a couple reports. And then the next day we would show the customer, this is what your data looks like in Oracle. Now, in those days, that was remarkable. The speed, the visit, you know, the ability to look at your data inside somebody else's application without having spent a dime or made any effort on your own. Today, that's an expectation. I love the fact that you faced an obstacle, can't share this data, and you figured it out. You found the solution. In this case, it was as far-reaching as going to India. In my mind, though, that's the hallmark of a great leader, a visionary, or a disruptor. They see a problem, and rather than saying can't be done, they say, okay, what do we need to do? Let's think outside of the box. 
Well, we, I had a fabulous team that thought about it, and there was a little pressure from the top. I won't, you know, pretend that I was ideating all the time. There was always pressure to do more. Salesforce is another innovative, I would say, paradigm-breaking company, and you had a big role to play at Salesforce. How did you end up going to Salesforce? You know, I left Oracle after 18 years. I went to Intuit because I really wanted to understand the SMB and consumer space. And I was there for about three years having a fabulous time when Mark Benioff called me. And of course, I had known Mark at Oracle for years and said, I'm building this really special thing. Just come up and talk to me. And when I went up there and I talked to him and I I felt the culture, you know, some I was, like I tasted the culture meeting with people their enthusiasm, kind of the the ability to recreate the category. At that point, the incumbent was Siebel and redefine what the category looked like. And this whole idea of software as a subscription really resonated with me because I had seen how hard it was for customers to put together the hardware and software solutions of the old way. And this idea of here's this sort of virtual stack in the cloud, we didn't call it the cloud then. It just felt like what a winning strategy. But I will tell you, it wasn't easy. 90 days after I joined the company in 2008, the market imploded. As you know, the banking system was at risk. And it was, I remember that moment of like, oh wow, this is gonna be a heavy lift. And it turns out 2008, much like 2020, um, forced us to really focus on what was core to our business and what was our mission and really hone in on helping customers who, by the way, really needed our help at that point, just like they do today in 2020, to make sure their businesses survived. So it was it was sort of a bittersweet kickoff of my experience there. But I love the company. I love their customer centricity and their thinking about community and philanthropy. I'm glad that you brought up the topic of 2008. There are there are certain moments in business history that will always live as major disruptive moments, whether it's 9-11, 2008, the time that we're going through now. You've been through all of those. What similarities do you see across those moments in time and what takeaways do you have in terms of how to confront them? Yeah, well, they're heartbreaking moments to begin with, right? 9-11, I'll never forget. 2008, we lost our confidence in you know the banking system. That hadn't happened since the depression. And I think And today, you know, with the pandemic, none of us have experienced this in our lifetime, the level of economic disruption. So, and that's really the result of these things, that there's economic disruption. So I have a playbook that I use. Jim Collins writes about it in Good to Great. He profiled Stockwell, you know, when he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. It's called the Stockwell Paradox. But I've always had this model. It's funny how you cook things up and then you find the formal models for them, where I like to embrace the worst case scenario. And that's what I do today on boards. I talk to CEOs when COVID hit. And again, in 2008, when I was at Salesforce, I built a worst case scenario model. What's the worst thing that can happen in a subscription model? Well, customers can cut their subscriptions, right? So you drop to zero revenue almost overnight with that particular customer. 
And I built sort of the worst case scenario, memorialized it, socialized it, and then asked myself, as I asked CEOs to do today, so what are you going to do about it? How are you going to make sure that worst case doesn't come to fruition? And I have found that that approach to memorializing the worst case scenario is so cathartic for people. It sort of coughs up all the fear and allows them to unpack like, oh, this could happen. All the chicken little disappears. And then they can embrace the go forward movement. And that's what I'm seeing in 2020. I think March and April were scary. May was sort of reality of all the things that we feared was starting to happen. And then people slowly but surely started climbing back with a more honed strategy in June, July, and here we are in August. So I'm optimistic for the future that most of these companies are going to come out of 2020 with a better profile, you know, more efficient, more focused. You at Salesforce went on to run Global Sales, president of, of sales. What is your advice for building a world-class sales team? Well, there are a couple of things. One is designing the brand experience that you want customers to have, being really thoughtful about them. So when you think about Salesforce, we thought about the cloud as sort of unburdening the customer. And we thought about subscription as a really disruptive business model to give them choice. What we spent more time thinking about post-2008 was what kind of experience do we want to provide them? So what kind of experience do we want to provide them in a trial, which we were able to do in those days, and designing that trial so that, you know, even a minute into the product experience, they were experiencing something different than what a traditional on-prem software solution would give them. We played around a lot with what customer success looked like. In the early days at Salesforce, the first customer success experience was an SDR calling and asking the customer if they needed help with their trial. That was novel (laughs) in those days. That's standard today. But in those days, that was novel. And it really struck customers as, oh, this company really cares. They really want to help me get up and running. They really want to help me understand the capabilities of this particular offering. And then hiring people in who understand that there's an ethos to how you show up. It's a brand experience. It's like checking in to a four seasons. You have certain expectations for what the experience will look like and never losing track of that in any of our human interactions with customers, really having this kind of white glove approach to the experience, make it easier, don't use kind of the typical tactics. So I think we were remarkably lucky because we had a disruptive technology solution that was really easy to start using and see value in. We call that time to value. But then we also had a really disruptive business model where there was a low cost of entry, low barrier of entry. And then only if you liked the product, would you continue with us? That put a big burden on us in terms of how we showed up. So Getting that design right and being really clear about what the incentives look like on other side and experience is important. I think the second piece is enabling your team to meet that bar. I think if there's one area that sales leaders and executive teams tend to underinvest in, it's enablement. 
there, you know, we don't teach people how to use the tools. We don't have a clear value prop. We don't have a clear playbook. Or it's so constraining that people won't use it, right? That's the alternative that things are over-engineered. And then, you know, a creative seller feels too constrained and they just won't buy into it. So getting those pieces right. And then at a company level, I like to describe the role of the sales executive as you're always fighting to be in front of equilibrium in terms of investment. So if there's, as you know, as a marketing leader, you're building pipe, you always want to have the capacity to go after that pipe. But what if you're just in front of that? And you have a little more capacity than you need. So finding that equilibrium that's right in front of, finding that spot that's right in front of equilibrium allows you to maximize the opportunity. That sounds really easy on paper, but when you're making decisions like, should we enter Germany or France to find that, get in front of equilibrium, that's a much harder decision, (laughs) especially if you need lead time of a year (laughs) to make that happen. I really enjoy hearing your your sales philosophy, laying it out in those different steps. I actually want to tie together the first point you made with something you made, a point you made earlier. You said growing up, you were part of a team. Yeah. What's interesting about the first point you made with respect to sales, the star of the show is not the individual salesperson. It's the experience. And that salesperson is part of the experience, an integral part of the experience, but they're not the star. That's a different perspective than I think you get from a lot of sales leaders. I think that's right. The customer is the experience and it's theirs, right? They carry all their bias and baggage and expectations when they come to it. But they're the star of the experience. And I do think that's different. I learned that. That's a consumer product uh, like CPG companies. That's a consumer product perspective to put the customer at the center of the experience. I think we do that today pretty well in tech with um, open source, you know, where the developer is at the center of the experience. That's pretty cool. So the third major company I wanted to talk about is New Relic. What's incredible is you started off at Oracle, kind of helped to pioneer a new sales model. Inside sales was a big portion of that, being able to trial a very complicated product. You then moved on to Salesforce, obviously all about the cloud. New Relic is another model-breaking company with this grassroots motion that you were effectively able to convert into a commercial enterprise motion, ultimately. Can you talk a little bit about New Relic? How did you get there, and what did you learn while you were there? Yeah, I mean, you're right in every description you gave that company. One of, you know, first of all, what drew me to New Relic, in a, outside of the founder, Lou Cerny, who's a wonderful man, was this idea that there was a new category emerging and we called it, it had been called IT ops, DevOps. It's now really sort of observability writ large because uh, the market understands that digital experiences are critical. They're strategic to every brand. And in talking to Lou, I could see he understood where the market was going and how important having all aspects of observability of the customer experience in any kind of digital experience, whether it be on your mobile phone or in a web browser was incredibly important. So that's what got me to the company. What was fascinating to me was the strength of the community that they had. They had hundreds of thousands of developers carrying the flag for New Relic, using it in production applications, prototype applications, early dev work. 
And these are all the folks that are planting the brand, the flag for your brand out in the market. And the real question was, could I come in and convert all those planted flags into a crop, you know, which would really be a decision to standardize on new relic for their enterprise, whatever size of company. So, of course, the early entrants were all the tech companies that were innovating quickly and consumer tech companies. But soon we came to realize that every company was moving to a digital strategy and we had the opportunity to come in and coexist with older legacy solutions that were out there, mostly focused on on-prem experiences, back office experiences, and we could wholly own the front office digital experience. And it was wonderful. We had to really think carefully about who focused on the developers who really carried, as you know, as a marketing executive, carried really the brand for us. And then who were the important decision makers at different types of companies. Sometimes it was the CEO, sometimes it was a general manager, sometimes it was the head of product, It really or e-commerce. It really depended upon the company and what the business case was. But I continue to think that now, you know, this observability digital infrastructure sector will continue to grow and innovate. For those companies that are fortunate enough to have a strong grassroots motion, what is your advice in terms of converting that into full enterprise deployments? What does the playbook look like for that? That's a fabulous question. Uh, Let me tell you the one thing that we all underestimate in this playbook is how much friction we put as solution providers into our own processes. So number one, you want to make it really easy for someone to try your offering. And you want to make the first use experience, especially for the developer in the New Relic case, fantastic, like mind-boggling, mind-blowing, magical. Like those are the words you want to hear in the customer verbatims. It was magical. I couldn't believe I saw X. And then you want to instrument that every touch point for the customer experience, digital and human, to have that same kind of magical formula and move their sophistication level in using your product. So as you know, the first time someone uses a product, I think an iPhone is probably a nice analog. The first time you use your iPhone, you make a couple phone calls. You might use your email application, but then you branch out and you use more and more functionality. It's during that branching out period that the customer success team plays a really strategic role in teeing you up to be the new standard. Because you want to find like these strategic initiatives that you can drive as you're branching out their use of your capabilities. And then you want to ask to be made a dual. Typically, we all end up being a dual standard and then we become the standard. So it's this progression. It can take years. At some companies, it can take months at others. But designing for those incremental moments, first get the hearts and minds of the end user, then become the dual standard, then become the sole standard. Yeah. And obsess about points of friction, whatever they might be. This is where we often choose to self-cannibalize on a pricing question because it's a point of friction. You figured all of these different things out about business models over a few decades Now you're spending your time with nonprofits. Tell me a little bit about why nonprofits and the for-profit lessons that you're sharing to help nonprofits. 
You know, so the nonprofits that you're referencing are the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. They focus on improving survivability for people with pancreas cancer. And then the University of Chicago, which I've gotten engaged in. I chair the Harris School of Public Policy now, something I never thought would happen. Um, what's interesting is both of these organizations have figured out what their mission is. For PanCan, it's survivability. And for Chicago, it's creating policymakers who are also data scientists and who can leverage evidence-based, who can create evidence-based policies. So the question that I always am asking myself is, how do I scale these organizations to deliver on the mission? Hillary, there's certainly some poetry here. I'm thinking about the young woman who applied to the University of Chicago, not sure she was going to get in. Obviously, you got in, but now chairing the program that you were a part of. Life has many wonderful twists and turns and certainly many surprises. You've had many successes in your academic career, in your professional life. I've got to ask, though, do you ever experience moments of self-doubt? And if so, what do you do to push through those? Well, I have a motto, and that is because I have terrible moments of self-doubt, and I had to figure out what my coping mechanism would be or what my strategy would be. So my motto is life is a numbers game, and that's my way of depersonalizing the failures, which are constant, by the way, the successes, which also have a lot to do with luck and good timing um, and being on a great team. And I sort of look at life as this incredible adventure. It's generally up and to the right, but it has these little baubles where it goes down. And I look at it as a numbers game. And it's funny when you look at life, when you look at sports players, they look at their track record as a numbers game, you know, and if you look at a lot of aspects of life, it's really about like how many at-bats you get. Um, so that keeps me going through the difficult times. Hillary, you have a remarkable career in many respects. One of the things, though, that stands out to me is the fact that you don't have the traditional pedigree of many execs in Silicon Valley. What advice would you give to someone who is young in their career and thinking about the path that they'd like to follow? And are there any specific things that you'd like to call out, particularly for young women? Yeah, that's a great question. And people comment on this all the time to me. I have sort of the classic liberal arts background. I didn't study electrical engineering or computer science, nor do I believe that that degree is required for a lot of the leadership and entry-level roles in any tech company. That may be appropriate for the head of engineering, potentially even for the head of product, but for a lot of roles, Having a broad-based background is good enough, and I, I don't like it when we hear in the Valley that somebody's major is self-defining of their career. I don't believe it. So my advice for everyone is dream big. Really think about where you want to go. Become an expert in a functional area, and then, as we've seen people do, Justin, take that rotational assignment so you can get a broader perspective and if you're unclear about what you're doing, write down a five-year plan. Take the time. And I've done this for myself. I've actually done this for friends where they've described to me what they think they're good at, 
and what they want to do. And I've written a narrative for them and given it to them because I know it's a gift. I know how hard it is to sit down and reflect on where you want to go. And a lot of us have mixed emotions about our ambition. I think young women feel struggle with this. I struggled with this. Do I want to be a wife? Do I want to be a mother? Do I want to be an ambitious executive? And I decided I wanted to be all of those things, but I had to get comfortable with the idea that it was okay to do all of those things. So putting this in writing and building a plan for yourself, I think is incredibly empowering. And I hope that I serve as a role model for all the young women out there who maybe studied something different in college, but want to get into tech. Like I remember a remarkable woman that worked for me at Oracle who studied women's studies at Harvard. And she was one of the most successful product managers at another tech company 20 years into her career and eventually became the CEO of a tech company. Like, how's that for a success story? I heard you bring up the concept of role models. I'm interested to learn a little bit more about the impact that role models have had in your own life and more generally, how you think about role models. In my case, you know, a lot of men were wonderful role models to me. They were running companies, they were running organizations, but then also a lot of women, especially as my career went forward, I could see women who had taken on these big jobs, were married, had families, and they inspire you. They sort of tell you, you can do it. I, you know, Justin, I remember when I gave birth to my first child and I came back to work after, you know, just a very short maternity leave, a lot of the young women in the division that I ran asked me about motherhood in very deep, you know, very personal questions. And I remember thinking, you know, the New England in me sort of saying like, well, these are very personal questions. But what I realized listening to them was they just wanted to know how they could do it, like down to the details of did you nurse? Did you continue to nurse when you went back to work? Will you be traveling? They just really wanted to, they were asking questions for themselves to see if they could try on that model of being. And so I've come to see the power of having role models. And I hope in this latter part of my career as a venture capitalist and as somebody who sits on a lot of boards that I can inspire young women, young men, whomever to kind of reach their full potential, you know, and not feel held back by any belief or lack of understanding. Great advice. Well, thank you so much, Hillary. You're welcome. Life is a numbers game. Life is a numbers game. 